All right, uh, the scripture reading, actually, if you want to remain standing for the scripture reading, um, it is from Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, um, <clears throat> it's not difficult to imagine that uh, if Jesus were to say today what we heard, just read for us, it would be in every form of media imaginable, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, on the front page of the New York Times, we'd read, Jesus, the misogynistic Messiah, or if somebody was there and they, they had their iPhone out and they captured the moment, as soon as it hit their Facebook wall, it would go viral and, and Twitter would blow up with everybody demanding that Jesus make an apology, hashtag Canaanite crumbs, right? Hashtag, oh no, he didn't. Um, it'd be a publicity nightmare. And as modern people, when we hear this story and we hear this interchange between Jesus and this woman, we can't help but ask a question. I mean, how can Jesus say what he said to this woman? and claim to be a king for all people. How can Jesus say what he said in this scenario and still claim to be a, a king for all people? I mean, how, how does this story fit within our framework and understanding of the gospel? It's not all nice and neat, especially when we come to understand John's account when he so brilliantly says in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes on him shall have everlasting life and will not perish, right? The whole world, for, for God loves the whole world, not just Israel. But what about this woman? What about this woman? If you've been with us, we've been walking through Matthew's account of this good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for a while now. And <clears throat> over the past couple chapters, Matthew has kind of escalated, pulling back the curtain on who Jesus really is. And what we've seen time and time again is that Jesus is none other than this cosmic king revealed. But even so, what are we to make of what we've been shown here in this passage? How, how are we to understand Jesus and even who God is in this passage? Because for so many, when, when they look at this passage, and it's easy to get there, at first reading, Jesus appears ethnocentric, he appears bigoted, he even appears kind of sexist. What are we to make of this Jesus? What are we to make of him? Now, to be clear, we shouldn't come expecting Jesus to be a 21st century modern Westerner, <laughs> nor should we expect him to embrace every bit of the sentiments of American culture. But it would also be dishonest to somehow pigeonhole Jesus 
as if he merely held on to a Jewish worldview and was so limited, and what many people mean by limited or contextualized is skewed in his perspective, if he only would just catch up with the times. And this is why. You see, Matthew walked and talked with Jesus, and he wants us to see the Jesus he knows, that he interacted with. And in chapter 1 of Matthew, he makes it very clear that Jesus is not just some first century Jewish good teacher. He says that Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. And what that does is only add even more weight to what's happening here. Because understanding how Jesus is interacting with this woman here informs how we understand God's heart for the world. Understanding how and what Jesus is doing here informs how we are to approach Jesus as followers of Jesus and how we're to now follow him on mission into the world. So, as we walk through this passage, we're going to do our due diligence. We're not really going to leave a stone left unturned. And what we're going to find in a really difficult moment in history is that Jesus is still a very beautiful Savior. That he, he really is a king for all people. And that, there's no person Jesus isn't after. There's no limit to Jesus' compassion. And there's no better proof of this than the cross. Okay, so that's our scaffolding as we're walking through our passage this morning. So let's take a look at this. Let's take a look at this. It all starts off really kind of strange. Um, and it's helpful if you understand the geography. Um, Jesus finds himself in a region where the two most well-known cities are Tyre and Sidon, okay? And this region is predominantly Gentile. If you follow throughout the pages of Scripture throughout the Old Testament, you know Tyre and Sidon are known most predominantly for being cities that were in opposition to the God of Israel. It's kind of like Kansas City is known for barbecue. Everybody would have read Tyre and Sidon and be like, oh, those people, you know? And what Matthew says here is that behold, in other words, you're never going to believe this. You've got to pay attention because a Canaanite woman, she recognized us, she recognized Jesus, and she came out crying out to Jesus. Now, in the first century, calling someone a Canaanite even still felt out of place. If you go to Mark's account of the story in Mark chapter 7, he calls her a Syrophoenician woman. And some will say, see, the Gospels, they contradict one another. Not quite. It's actually two ways of talking about the same region. In the first century, it was common to call someone a Syrophoenician if they were from that region. But what Matthew's doing by highlighting her Canaaniteness is reminding us of a heritage, reminding us that she is a descendant of the people, the Canaanites, who were some of the worst enemies of the people of Israel. So you find Jesus in a region where the two most well-known cities are known for their opposition to the God of Israel and the people of Israel. And now we find this person who's a descendant of some of the worst enemies of the God of Israel and the people of Israel. And she comes crying out to Jesus. And vehemently, she's doing this, this over and over. And what does she say when she first approaches Christ? Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. What's so fascinating is that this woman really knows her stuff. I mean, she's using really theologically rich language. And she comes up, approaching Jesus, seemingly very aware of the promises that God has made to, his, to Israel throughout history. 
knowing that there was this ancient King David of Israel, that God had made a promise to David that one of his heirs would sit on the throne of Israel again and bring justice and mercy to the world over, and he'd never come down from his throne. And she professes something that most of Israel has yet to recognize, that Jesus, you're that heir. You are that son of David. Now, she not only knows her theology, she also understands her context. She's a Gentile. And in Jewish culture in the first century, she is seen as ritually unclean by Jews. You couldn't touch a Gentile and go into the temple without washing. She couldn't approach or even dream of approaching a Jewish rabbi then. And yet with the stakes stacked against her, she still follows after Jesus. Now, I've heard someone once say that there are three kinds of people in the world, okay? And and there are, of course, more, but this helps us anyway. There are three kinds of people in the world. Heroes, cowards, and parents. (laughs) Because if you're a parent, right, if you're a parent, then even if your temperament is to be timid or quiet, as soon as you see your kid in danger, something snaps inside of you, and you almost will do the irrational if that means you begin to cultivate a space of safety once again for your child. So when she comes to Jesus and she crosses almost gender lines, she crosses cultural lines to approach Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us because she's a mom who's caring for her daughter. But she, that's not the only thing motivating her. She also understands who Jesus is. And so she presses in and, and as she's crying out, what's, what's Jesus' response here? Nothing. Stone, cold silence. But she keeps crying more and more. And if you've ever been around someone who's screaming, if you've ever been around a kid that's screaming, you're going to do anything after a while to just silence the cries. And she's crying out, and the disciples, they go up to Jesus, and they're like, hey, Jesus, all right? This woman is screaming, and she's, she's kind of driving us nuts. Will you, just, will you just send her away? And and when you look at the word, send her away, in the Greek, it actually has this emphasis of releasing her by means of giving her what she's asking for. And we also know this is what they're saying because of how Jesus responds. Jesus looks at the disciples within earshot of this woman as she's crying out to Jesus. And he says, disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Wait, wait, what? Right? Like, there's like that moment because for God so loved the world that he sent his son. So what's going on here? We're going to come back to that here in just a little bit later. But what does the woman do after Jesus says this? She gets down on her knees in this posture of just utter humiliation. And she begins to beg, the text says, Lord, help me. Lord, please help me. Please, Lord, my daughter, help me. I mean, what are you going to do then if you're finding yourself in this scenario? Well, what does Jesus do? (laughs) He looks at her and he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, that just sounds awful, doesn't it? There's just not a whole lot of ways to make that sound pretty. And listen, we in our culture, we like our dogs. Some of us put our dogs on par with children. And when, um, 
when Allie and I, we were in Chicago, we were walking around downtown, and that's my wife, um, just if you had any questions. Why is he taking this trip with this woman? That's my wife. Um, <clears throat> and, and we were walking around Chicago, and, and this sweet woman was pushing a stroller, and I look in, and it's the most ugly child I've ever seen, you know? So much hair, and then you realize it's a dog, like in baby clothes, in a stroller, She's walking around so proud. And I was like, that's a thing. I didn't even know that was a thing. I mean, I knew they carry them in the purses, but like in a stroller, it, it threw me. And it seems like no other culture where that's a thing. Or you're strolling through the, the channels, you know, on TV, and Sarah McLaughlin is singing this heart-moving, you know, heartwarming song. And it's about brutalized animals. And look, we love animals, and we should love animals as people who are called to care for the world. But that's just kind of strange. <laughs> And it's even more strange if you go back to the first century, because in Jewish culture, dogs weren't these little sweet things that you invited into your home. They were seen as wild, dirty scavengers. And, and actually, there's a euphemism in Jewish culture towards Gentiles because they were seen as these dirty, wild scavengers. So Jesus is insulting her then, right? Not quite. You have to understand the whole of the story. Jesus is talking to a mom. And he begins to tell her a story of the dinner table. The dinner table. And even in the first century, especially in the first century, and still somewhat in the 21st century, the dinner table is the domain of the mother, right? And he begins to detail out this story. And I want you to look at two different nuances of what he says in that sentence. First, he's talking about children and dogs. But the word he uses for dogs here isn't the word that's common for wild scavengers, dogs. Instead, it's this language of puppy. It's the diminutive. It's, it's smaller. It's, it's cute. And it's kind of like a pet. And in Gentile culture, they did sometimes have dogs as pets. And so Jesus is describing this dinner table scenario, and it's basically like he's talking to her, and he says, you know how it is at dinner. Everybody's seated around the table, and you're going to feed the children before you feed your pet puppy. To feed the puppy first is just weird. In the coil house, we have our little sweet rescue, Lola. <laughs> and uh, she's a wonderful little puppy. Um, and she kind of lives into what her name often is known for, whatever Lola get wants, you know, Lola gets. Except for at dinner. Because she'll sit there and she'll stare at our kids and try these like Jedi mind tricks, like motionless, <laughs> hoping they're going to throw some food down, you know, down, at, down her way. But it would be so weird if, if we saw Lola... And our, and our kids, Ava and Israel, coming to the dinner table, like, you know, kids, hold on, okay, just wait your turn. We're going to feed Lola first. Like, that's weird. That's not the normal movement of a dinner table, okay? And, and what Jesus is saying is, the children in this story are Israel, and the dogs in this story are Gentiles, which is basically the whole world over outside of Israel, which is probably 99%, if not more, of the people in this room this morning. And what Jesus said earlier begins to make sense when he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, meaning I have come as a Jewish Messiah to first and in my incarnation to come and engage the nation of Israel. Why? There are a lot of reasons for this, but here are just a couple. I mean, you can't understand what Jesus has come to do until you begin and desire to seek to understand what God has been doing before Jesus' birth. And what God has been doing throughout history has tangentially or primarily been through Israel, sometimes in spite of Israel, to be sure. 
You see, Jesus doesn't step into a vacuum, but he steps into a rich history and a rich culture like each and every one of us does when we're born into this world. And we have to seek to understand what God has revealed about himself in the Old Testament, what is called the time before, before Christ, if we're ever to understand what God is doing in Christ and is so revealed in the New Testament. And they're more dialogical rather than antithetical. When you understand what God is doing in the new, you can even look back in the old and it's more rich. This is a story of one God throughout history, not two separate gods or two separate concepts of God, but one God who is more deeply revealed throughout history and now exemplary in Jesus Christ. And so as we come, we understand that Jesus is stepping into a history and that the New Testament isn't God's plan B, but even before the foundation of the world, the Apostle Paul says this was always God's plan, that in between the old and the new, we have the person of Jesus. He's always the very center of what God is doing in history. And so Jesus was sent first to Israel to show Israel that God really does keep his promises to Israel that he is the fulfillment of the prophets, the priests, the kings, the temple. All of that finds its fulfillment in him and his work, such that after he has adequately pursued Israel throughout his perfect life and paid for not only the insufficiency of Israel, but the insufficiency of the world in his death, in his resurrection, when he approaches the 11 disciples, the apostles, what does he say to them in Matthew 28? Go now and make disciples of all nations. God has been working through Israel to bring about the redemption of the world. And, and listen, that, that's challenging because there are questions, right? Well, why Israel? And why not some other nation? Why this people group over against that people group? And what we need to understand when we come to Scripture is that Scripture doesn't answer every one of our curious questions, but it does give us enough for sufficiency in faith and obedience. Because what we find with God that the prophet Isaiah reminds us of is that his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. And that can even be challenging to wrestle through how God is working uniquely through Israel to bring about the redemption of the world. But in the midst of that challenge, there's a veiled offer. And this woman, she sees it. She's actually quite a brilliant theologian when you come to look in this passage. She sees that everybody who surrounds the table has a place to be fed. Look at this, look at this. Do you know that across all the account of Matthew, there is no one who understands Jesus' stories without Jesus having to explain them? No one but this woman. She understands exactly what Jesus is saying. And she's not insulted at all by what we see here. Instead, in this one moment, she reveals she understands more than even the Pharisees and who Jesus is and what he's come to do, so much so that she extends the story. You know somebody really understands what you're saying when they begin to expand the metaphor, right? They, they've, they've lived into that world, they've explored it, and now they expand it. And listen to what she says again. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She gets it. In other words, she's saying, look, I know I'm not an Israelite. I know I don't share those customs. And I know I don't deserve a place at the table. And she, she's not insulted by what Jesus says. And she doesn't come making demands on her rights. But instead, she anticipates that there's such a surplus that when Jesus is at the head of the table, even the crumbs are enough. If she could just have the crumbs. 
And Lord Jesus, if you just come and give the crumbs now. How does Jesus respond to this? I mean, his answer tells it all. In his answer, we see that Jesus has known her heart all along. Matthew records Jesus affirming this woman in a way he affirms no one else in all of Matthew's account. You see this? Oh, woman, great is your faith. Nowhere else in all 28 chapters of Matthew's account is anyone's faith so praised than this woman here in this moment, a Canaanite from a land that is known for its opposition to the God of Israel. And what does he say? Be it done for you as you desire. In other words, which is a really weird way of saying this, in other words, Jesus says you get it such that even what you desire is in line with what I desire, so may you have what you long for. And her daughter is healed instantly. And what we begin to see is that contrary to what we think at first blush in our hypersensitive culture, as a matter of fact, there's no person that Jesus isn't after. There's no person that Jesus isn't after. Because it looks like she's the one who's pursuing Jesus and pressing into Jesus, and in one sense she is. But the reality is, is that Jesus isn't trying to detour her. He knows her heart, and he's trying to tease out the very depths of her faith that it would actually teach the disciples who are onlooking, that it would shame the faithlessness of all of Israel, the children who have a seat at the table, and now has been recorded in Scripture for you and I to be reading millennia later, and she's affirmed for the greatness of her faith. Jesus was being very thoughtful and actually bringing great honor to her in what seemed to be, at first blush, a very insulting situation. And isn't it ironic that the Pharisees, you know, the ones who are really excellent at behavior management, who know Scripture inside and out, who, as we saw last week, walked 31 miles so that they could confront Jesus, they don't get it. They're all worried about the externals to cleanliness, and saying, if you touch the wrong things, you're going to become unclean. And who is considered more unclean than a Gentile? And so Jesus says, it's not about externals that make you unclean. And, and outside of just teaching that, now Jesus shows us that he now spends time with someone who is seen as unclean in a land that's unclean, and they display the greatest faith of all. Who has the best heart? And it's this woman right here. Because Matthew, he's trying to show us what's at the very centerpiece of what it means to follow him. And we can't miss this. You see, it doesn't matter whether you have an Ivy League education or you failed to get your GED. It doesn't matter whether you grew up in one sense in a Christian home and you heard Bible stories your whole life or you grew up in an atheistic home or you grew up in an intact home or a broken home. It doesn't matter in one sense your nationality, your gender, your socioeconomic status, your ethnicity, because there's no person that Jesus isn't after. But there's one thing in every person that Jesus is after, faith. That becomes the defining marker of who we are, faith. And it's not just any faith, not faith in a broad sense. We're not supposed to have faith like the Pharisees if we learn anything from Matthew's account. So there is wrong faith, and not all faith or all faiths are equal. There is such a thing as great faith. And we can't miss this here in this passage. No matter how long you've been following Jesus, maybe it's decades, maybe you're here because a friend invited you and you're exploring who Jesus is, we've all got room to grow here. So come to Jesus with faith like this, with faith like a Canaanite woman. There's a brilliant theologian, 
who pursues Jesus. So what is faith? What is faith? Just as a review here, I think one of the best places that we come to understand what faith is is how the author of Hebrews defines it in Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And this woman's tenacious conviction that there is more goodness that she has yet to see is at the very fore of her story, such that she presses in. And this is what her faith is like. It is a humble assertiveness. See this tension? A humble assertiveness based in God's goodness in Jesus, not her rights. Not her rights. It's humble in that there are three, the three times where Jesus pushes back, she still responds with Lord. And all three of three times, Lord, Lord, Lord. She understands who is Lord, and it's not her. Secondly, she's assertive. She won't take no for an answer. And we almost have no concept for this in our culture because the only way we think that we can be assertive is if we demand our rights. If we say we, we deserve this, then we won't take no for an answer, but that's not her tact. All the difference lies in why she continues to press in. It's not because she thinks she can manipulate Jesus to finally give in to what she wants. It's not because she thinks that Jesus doesn't understand her plight. It's not, it's not even because... She feels like she deserves this. Instead, she comes to Jesus, even though he'd been silent when she cried out, even though he made the statement he did to the disciples, even though he told the story he did to her. She comes with this humble assertiveness based upon God's goodness that she sees in Jesus, a conviction that there is more yet to be seen. Lord Jesus, help. Silence. Yes, Lord Jesus, but please, please have mercy on me. Help. I've come only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But, but yeah, but yes, Jesus, but please have, have mercy on me. Well, I have to feed the children before I feed the dogs. But yes, even we get the crumbs, and none of us deserves to be at the table. But if I could just have your crumbs because of who you are, that would be enough. Can you just, can you by your mercy give us the crumbs now? Do you have faith like this, based upon the goodness of God in Christ, not because you think you deserve it, always coming respectfully to him as Lord, you're not Lord, but still assertive and pressing in because of who God is? Do you have faith like this, a faith like a Canaanite woman who understands who Jesus is and his mission to the whole world? I mean, there's no person that Jesus isn't after, but there's one thing that Jesus is after in every person, and that's faith. So come to him with faith like this. And, and when, you, when you learn to kind of live and lean into that kind of faith, you're going to come to discover that the crumbs are always more than enough because of the one who serves you. And that's actually what we see play out for us here in the remainder of Matthew chapter 15. We didn't have that passage read for us, but I want to walk through it just quickly this morning. At Matthew chapter 15, verse 29, we find Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. And once again, Mark's account here is helpful because he details out that Jesus is actually in the southeast section of the Sea of Galilee called the Decapolis. 
Deca meaning ten, capitalist meaning city. So there are ten cities that are known to be predominantly Gentile again. <laughs> so Jesus goes from one Gentile region now to another Gentile region. And all of these Gentiles are bringing their sick, the lame, the blind, the mute to him. And Jesus is healing the lot of them. And, and, and what we read in verse 31 is that they see what Jesus is doing and they begin to praise, to glorify the God of Israel, which would be really weird for, for Jewish people to say that. But of course, these are Gentiles. And they're amazed that a Jewish Messiah would invite them in. And after they've been up there for three days in the midst of a desolate place, listen to what Jesus says here in verse 32. I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. I have compassion on the crowd. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry. This word compassion, it should be familiar to you if you've been walking with us through Matthew's account. The word compassion, it has this idea of a physical gut-wrenching feeling that always leads to action out of love. You see something, you feel this sting in the very pit of your stomach, and you just can't stand by anymore. You've got to do something. Also, if you've been with us just two weeks ago, you may remember that in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus feeds another massive group of people, and they walk away satisfied. And the stories in Matthew chapter 14 and Matthew 15, where we are today, they seem strikingly similar. I would encourage you in your time while you're reading and you're spending time in God's Word daily over this next week, maybe take one of those days and read the section in Matthew 14 called the feeding of the 5,000 and compare it to the feeding of the 4,000 we have here in Matthew 15. Because in both instances, you find Jesus in a desolate place, people are hungry, and Jesus has compassion on them. The same word shows up. In both instances, Jesus asked the disciples to feed them, and they're perplexed. <laughs> and then he says, what do you got? What do you got? You know? And then he miraculously breaks it and has enough to feed everyone. And in both instances, there's a surplus. And that begs the question, Matthew's writing this by hand, okay? And if you're writing something by hand, real estate is really important because you know it's also going to be copied by hand. You don't put any meaningless words in there. You can't just copy-paste the beast. This is before the printing press. So Matthew's very strategic on what stories he tells. So why does he tell two stories that are so strikingly similar and such close juxtaposition to each other within his, his gospel account? And that also begs a second question, because in the time frame of where these two stories happen, why don't the disciples get it the second time? Right? I mean, I know they're dense, just like the rest of us are dense, but they're not any more stupid than the rest of us, okay? If I was in the same scenario, I'd be like, okay, grab the fish, grab the bread. All right, Jesus, do your thing. But why not? And the key to understanding why this one's here is to notice the differences rather than similarities. In the first passage, if you look back in Matthew 14... Jesus is in a Jewish part of town, and he's surrounded by a Jewish crowd. And what the disciples begin to realize is that this is the messianic banquet where God's people surround God's king and God's kingdom is coming in. And they begin to say, oh, now I'm starting to get it. But now they're in the Decapolis, 
Once again, Kansas City, associated with barbecue. Decapolis, associated with Gentiles. Okay, that's what people, the readers who would have been reading this through would have understood. And now all of these Gentiles are surrounding Jesus on another mountain. And it looks a little too uncomfortably similar to the last feeding. And the disciples begin to wonder, are they a part of God's people too? You mean they're going to be at the Messianic banquet too? And they completely misunderstand who Jesus is and what he's come to do, that there's no limit to Jesus' compassion. There's no limit to Jesus' compassion. You see, when Jesus was teasing out the depths of this Canaanite woman's faith in a, in a land that is opposed often to God's people and God's purposes, it was also for the purpose of the disciples to see that God's people are now going to be made up of people who have faith. That's going to be the primary marker of what it means to belong to God's household. And they miss it. They misunderstand what Jesus has come to teach. They misunderstand that there's room enough around the table for everyone who comes to Christ. They misunderstand that there's enough bread to go around, that the best meals are those that are shared rather than those that are hoarded. They misunderstand that the crumbs are enough to feed thousands. But honestly, sometimes we give these people of history that we happen to read Millennia later, we happen to give them a hard time, but honestly, who could blame them? If you understand the historical situation of what's happening here, the Jewish people are a minority that have often been squished by the Greco-Roman Empire made of Gentiles. They're the oppressors. They're the ones who have brought down the burdens on Israel. They're the ones who have raped their daughters. They're the ones who have murdered their sons and enslaved their sons. They're the ones who desecrated their temple actually took some of their sons, murdered them, and sprinkled their blood on a sacred altar. This is the framework they see Gentiles. This is why they see them as ritually unclean. You've got to understand the context and the tension of this moment. And now Jesus says, have compassion on them. And I want you to go and play a part in serving your oppressors. You can imagine now where the disciples say, uh, do we got anything around? Nope, we don't have anything, Jesus. And Jesus, actually, interestingly enough, in this feeding has to pursue the disciples to really push them to bring out what they've actually got. And they're like, Jesus, is this a test? You can't expect us to feed them. It was a test, and they failed miserably. And look, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, we've all got room to grow when it comes to compassion. We've all got room when it comes to grow in compassion. Because as life goes on, we get hurt. Every one of us knows the sting of hurt in relationship. And the closer that person is to you, the more deep that wound runs. And the more hard our hearts can become towards others. And so we begin to build these walls or these lines of demarcation where these people deserve our compassion, but these people don't deserve our compassion. And we have to learn a lesson here about how the gospel actually expands our capacity for compassion. So follow Jesus with compassion like this. Not like where the disciples had drawn a line that they would never cross, but with Jesus who shows limitless compassion. And listen, you, you may have seen Jesus do a lot of things in your life. The disciples sure had up to this point. But you may be struggling here. You've got history with someone. Maybe it's an ex-spouse. 
and those wounds have never healed. Maybe it's a friend who seems complacent and you sought to reach out and they haven't been reciprocal and you felt burned. Maybe it's a boss who's been riding you hard. Maybe it's a coworker who gossiped and stabbed you in the back. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a child, whoever. We have these histories. And we can't even fathom that Jesus would now invite us and say, now's the time for you to go and show compassion. Now's the time for you to go and serve them, whoever them is to you. And maybe you're sitting here and, and you're thinking, well, I don't have a, a name or a face of anyone popping up in my mind right now. And maybe it's not a particular person, but it's a group of people. I just think about this last week. Maybe, maybe you're in, in your mind thinking, well, I can never show compassion to the Democrats because they did this sit-in in the House, and that's ridiculous. Or maybe, maybe I can never show compassion to the Republicans. What's wrong with them? Why won't they ever just be willing to put up a vote? I can't ever show compassion to people who don't understand national security when it comes to immigrants. Or maybe I can never show compassion to people who don't get that we need immigration reform. Or maybe I, I, I can never show compassion to people who want to let in refugees. Do you understand the risk we're at? I can never show compassion to people who, who, won't re, who won't receive refugees. And we start to draw these lines as to who we'll show compassion to and who we won't. I mean, are we really doomed as a society to continually grow in our polarization and our fragmentation? that we're unwilling to reach across the aisle, reach across the street, look over the cubicle and engage one another and have compassion to those who hold different ideologies, different perspectives, and have even wounded us deeply. If we can't have compassion, then our society will crumble and the church will crumble and we as people, individuals, will crumble from the inside out. But that's not the kind of people Jesus calls us to. He calls us to something radical, to, to show compassion like this, to cross ethnic lines, racial lines, socioeconomic lines, party lines, and seeing in each person, each person that they carry within them the indelible mark of the image of God, compassion, humble service towards others, not based upon your rights, but because of the goodness of God that's actually in reflection to who they are made in the image of God. This is compassion. This is grace. And what more does our society need? What more does our church need, our community need? When we think of the different lines of demarcation that we've institutionalized in Kansas City, we've all got room to grow in compassion, don't we? I mean, and maybe there's even someone in your heart that you're thinking they'll never, the gospel can never penetrate them. They're too different. They're too distant. They're too far gone. Sure, Jesus is chasing them, but he'll never catch up. They'll never turn. What does your compassion look like? We have to come and follow Jesus with compassion like this. But since we struggle so deeply with this, I think there's one crucial question we all ask ourselves. At least I ask myself, well, how do I cultivate this kind of compassion then, right? <laughs> That's what I'm supposed to be like. What does it look like to cultivate this compassion or expand our boundaries of love begin to erase those demarcations of who we will and won't show compassion towards. Well, we have something 
that the disciples did not yet have at this point in the story. Something that Matthew is seeking to guide every one of us as readers, as now followers of Jesus, to place at the very center of our understanding of who God is and who Jesus is. There's one place where we see God's infinite compassion, where we come and we have to receive mercy first, recognize we need his mercy, and then learn what it means to give mercy. And it's here at the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're wrestling through questions as to whether there's no person that Jesus isn't after, if you're wrestling through questions as to whether there's no limit to Jesus' compassion, well, there's no better proof than the cross. There's no better proof of the cross. You know, only at the cross does God in his perfect holiness and all of his might become human and then is broken for us. And so forgiveness multiplied to all who are willing to partake. That even the crumbs of forgiveness are enough to satisfy the very depths of our soul. There's no better place to see the evidence of his compassion on an unworthy humanity. Not a subgroup of humanity, but all of humanity. No better place is our faith strengthened and our compassion widened. No better place for us to understand and first receive from Jesus his mercy for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the goodness of God displayed in his word so that when others fall short of our expectations of them, the goodness we've come to expect in other human beings, we now express with the same mercy that we've been given now out to them as the agents and followers of Jesus. Do you see this? If you have a real hard time giving mercy and compassion, then chances are you haven't allowed the mercy and compassion of the gospel to penetrate the depths of your heart. And that's a really scary place to be. How do you cultivate compassion? You have to receive it to the utmost and understand you need it to the utmost. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The world. Taste and see that the Lord is good, and all these things will be added unto you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, each and every one of us steps into a history. Every one of us, regardless of the color of our skin, steps in with a culture. We've got lines of demarcation as to who we'll show mercy to and who we won't, who we'll give compassion to, who we want, won't. And it just shows how little our faith is and what you can do and will do. God, work in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit to see the very depths of who you are, that you are limitless when it comes to compassion, that there's no person that you're not after. And then shape us to mirror that same, that same drive, that same motivation, that same life and heart cry. God, that's, that's really hard. And really, it's a lifelong project. We know that. We know that none of us here have arrived. And so I pray you continue to work within each of us, that we would keep our eyes fixed on the cross of Jesus, this, the, the one moment where you, where you, above all other moments, have shown your great compassion to us and what depths you'll go to love us. And may we do the same for the people we are diametrically opposed to, 
to the people who have hurt us even to the utmost, and so that the gospel might be proclaimed in how we love one another. God, help us. Bring your helpers to us, and may we receive the help they have to offer. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.